As we go to God's Word, then I invite you to open a pew Bible or a device if you're watching online to read the Scripture with us. I'll be reading from Philippians chapter 3, and the words will be on screen from the New International Version. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains for me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already arrived or obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press onward toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever gotten a a phrase from a commercial stuck in your head? One of those things that is just on repeat and you cannot get it out. Uh, advertisers often use this to get our attention. You might remember a few. Maybe there's the, the $5 footlong song or the ba of the golden arches or uh, like a good neighbor. Or maybe if you're a little older, you might remember this one. I wish I were an your wiener. You got it. My wife, Sarah, still remembers a phone number in her head from 20, 30 years ago, an advertisement that ran in the Chicago area that went something like 5882300 Empire of a, a, a carpet cleaning company. Now, these advertisements, of course, use this repetition to get our attention. They want to get that little hook into our minds. And if you hear the name of the company or the product enough times, then you will remember it. And I I do apologize for getting some of those earworms in your head. (laughs) Hopefully we can drive them out by the end of the service with some good, solid songs. 
Now, in that same way, Paul here is repeating himself again and again in Philippians. He's got these little catchphrases that are meant to hook into our brains. He he keeps saying the same thing again and again. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Make my joy complete. I rejoice with all of you, and so too you should rejoice and be glad with me. Joy is one of those key words we've seen so far in Philippians. And and now, no, no one likes being told what to do. No one likes being told to be joyful, and uh, forcing someone to be joyful is surely going to backfire on you. But in Philippians, as in much of Paul's letters, he, uh, the, the, the indicative precedes the imperative. That means what Jesus Christ has done comes first, and then, and only then, can we talk about joyful living. Because the Philippians are united in Christ, they can serve one another without grumbling. Because they are one with Christ in the one body and one spirit, they can stand firm. Because Jesus became a servant, they can serve one another in joy, without grumbling, without arguing. And Paul keeps on talking about joy in Philippians because that is the fruit of what Jesus has done for them. Now, there's one other phrase that keeps coming up in Philippians, and it's this phrase, in Christ. Because they are in Christ, they are one body. They are God's holy people in Christ. And Paul wants to know Christ, as he says here, and he wants to be found in him. Uh, For Paul to live is Christ. And he keeps circling back to this idea of being in Christ again and again. And although it seems like he's having a hard time putting words to what it means uh, Christ thinks that being, uh, Paul thinks that being in Christ is this ultimate goal of Christian life, and it is also the way to reach it. It is the means and the end. It's how we become part of Jesus Christ, and, and it's the goal that we're striving toward as well. So let's look a little closer at Philippians 3 to see how Paul gets there. Now, this church in Philippi is a, a church that has fallen under the sway of some false teachers, like, like many of the churches that Paul spoke to. It, they, they were hearing something like this. Yes, following Jesus is great, but there's something else you need to do. You need to follow all of the Jewish law. And you might remember some of this from, uh, f- from last summer when we went through the book of Galatians bit by bit. If you haven't, you can go back and listen to those sermons online. It was the same problem they had. Somehow these false teachers have worked their way into the church and they are saying, faith is not enough. Christ is not enough. You need to do something, just one little thing, uh, to be truly, fully, completely part of God's family. Uh, Of course, these teachers were Jewish Christians and that that little thing that they were saying is actually a big thing. It's following the whole of the Jewish law and, and especially circumcision as the sign of the covenant. You might also remember that this town of Philippi is a a Roman town. It's a a veteran's town. It's a place where they went to retire with their families. And and the church here in Philippi started out with this proclamation that Jesus is Lord. Paul went into town and he preached to a group of women who met by the riverside outside of town. They were followers of the God of Israel. And he told them the good news of Jesus Christ. And they followed and believed and changed their lives. And they began gathering in the household of Lydia, the leader of that small church. And they even welcomed this Roman jailer, this veteran, into the household of God through baptism. And they formed their little house church and they met for prayer and worship and study. And they stuck together through persecution and suffering because they loved Jesus. 
And then in come these false teachers telling them, no, no, there is something more you need to do. Because at its root, it comes down to doing. It comes down to works. These evildoers, or you could just say these doers, thought that something they did could make a difference with God. And Paul will have none of it. He, he calls them dogs, one of the harshest insults a, a Jew could give. He doesn't even call them circumcisers like he does in other letters. No, here he calls them mutilators. They are no better than those pagans out there who will cut their flesh to worship their gods. And Paul is certain that that is not the right way. Instead, he, he takes that word and he makes it for the church. In verse 3, he says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who uh, boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The church, he's saying, the church is the true people of God. Uh, And he's using that word circumcision as a shorthand for the, the whole covenant of being part of God's family, that whole agreement between God and his people about who God is and how to live together as a result of what God's done. Those mutilators are not part of this circumcision. It is we, we who serve God by his spirit, we who boast in Christ Jesus, who don't trust in anything we can do with our bodies to earn God's favor. And Paul, of course, he he can boast with the best of them. He he can hold his own against those false teachers because he grew up right in the middle of the Jewish religious system. He knows the way. He knows the rules and the laws inside out. And he has this perfect pedigree too. Uh, And he's not afraid to lay it out to them to show them that none of it matters. I mean, if anyone could depend on what they've done for being good, Paul could. And let's look at that list starting in verse 5. He says first that he was circumcised on the eighth day. See, Paul's family was really religious and they did all the right things at all the right times. Even in that Roman city of Antioch where he was born, they got him circumcised on the eighth day. Then he says, I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. These three things kind of mean the same thing with this increasing intensity. He's piling it on. He's a Jew, and he's from the smallest tribe, but the best tribe of Israel, the one known for its faithfulness to God's covenant. And he is a a Jew among Jews, an example to everyone. Then he says, in regards to the law, I'm a Pharisee. He came from this religious group called the Pharisees that were known for following all the rules, for living morally, and for studying the scriptures deeply. He was a a true believer of the Jewish religion, part of a a revival group within that, that time. Then he says, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. See, Paul, as we know from his life story, spent many years chasing Christians down and putting them in jail. And he knows the kind of suffering the Philippians are going through. And he himself went through when he was there and is suffering now as he writes this letter. And as for righteousness, he says, faultless. As for righteousness based on the law, I am faultless. And all of these things that Paul claims, from from being born in the right family to being raised in the right group to are pointing to this perfect, faultless person before God, except for one problem, one little problem, it is all worthless. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we, uh, we, we'd rather trust in something we can do, It gives us a sense of control over our lives. And it's the whole point of religion, according to some people. They say, I'm a good person. I haven't killed anyone. And they think that God owes them something. That that surely, since they're good, or at least not as bad as those people, 
that God owes them a good life. Surely God will give me a good life. Surely God will take me to heaven when I die. But if only it were that easy. But it seems like we humans fall into that trap again and again and again. As if there was something we could do to make ourselves right with God. And sometimes you see it in reverse. When your life isn't going so well and you're suffering and you think, God, I don't deserve this. As if you could do something to deserve a good life. And now today, a little later in the service, we're going to celebrate a baptism. We're going to welcome Jane into the family of God and her parents, Greg and Lissa, as members of this church. And Lissa, Greg, you're holding your beautiful daughter. She is beautiful. She is perfect. She is a joy. And her life is full of joy in your families. She's innocent. She's done nothing wrong. And if only there was something you could do to guarantee her a perfect life to guarantee her happiness and goodness and joy all her days. If only there was something you could do. I'm sure you would do it, right? And yet, yet, I'm sure you will do everything you can throughout your life to give her a good life. And yet it is not enough because there is nothing we can do in this life that can spare us from the suffering that comes from being human in this fallen world. And nothing we can do now can save us for the life to come. Because at the end of it, it is not about what we do. It is about what Christ has done. And when Paul looks at his life, he looks over his whole life story, everything he's done, every religious effort, every attempt to gain favor with God, he counts it all a loss. It is worthless, less than worthless. It is a loss for the sake of Christ, meaning that he's had to relearn how to live a life based not on religion, not on what you do, not on what you get, you get what you put in. He's had to learn how to live based on the gospel of grace, where you don't get what you deserve and you get what you don't deserve. And compared to Christ, everything is a loss. Compared to knowing Jesus Christ as Lord, nothing else matters. And because knowing Jesus means that everything else, every effort, every good work will be revealed to be the worthless work that it was all along. And Paul considers it all loss. And worse than that, he considers it garbage. And he uses this strong word, this barnyard word, this word for excrement. Paul's life has been changed. It's been turned upside down. It's been transformed by meeting Jesus. And he can't even begin, how, begin to imagine how he dared to bring before God this steaming pile of excrement, of good works, of hope that somehow God would favor him. And instead of those losses, Paul focuses on the gains. He gains Christ. By allowing Jesus to do this good work for him, this good work in him, he gains Christ. He is found in Christ, that key word of Philippians, and indeed in all of Paul's letters. And being in Christ is this way that someone becomes right with God. It's not about becoming right by doing the right things or by following the rules. No, it's what, about what Jesus Christ has done. And it's not about having faith in Christ, although that is true, but Paul won't even have any hint of his action in the matter. It's about the faithfulness of 
Christ, about what Christ Jesus has done in his faithfulness to the will of the triune God. And that's what verse 9 is about. It's not just about faith in Christ, but it is through the faithfulness of Christ, through that faithful, trustworthy action of Jesus Christ that Paul and the Philippians and we all can be saved. See, Paul wants to know Christ. And not just this head knowledge, but this heart and soul and body knowledge, this full and complete knowledge, this knowledge that begins and ends with the resurrection. Paul wants to know the power of Jesus' resurrection, this life-transforming power that comes from knowing that Christ is victorious over death. And then that knowledge moves to the cross where Paul wants to be a part of. He wants to participate in Christ's suffering. And he is suffering now even as he writes this from prison for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul's suffering gives me, uh, Christ's suffering gives meaning to Paul's suffering. Even at the point of death, even death on a cross. And it is this resurrection knowledge, this participation in Christ's suffering and death that leads to resurrection. And somehow Paul acknowledges the mystery of the resurrection of the dead. and He expects that he will be a part of it somehow. And then he pauses a moment and he says, well, of course, I'm not perfect. I've not reached the goal. Uh, That kingdom goal, that being in Christ goal, I'm not there. But I hold on to Christ just as Christ holds on to me. I I love that image. Uh, Christ holds on to us as we cling to Christ. And that is good news indeed. And Paul clarifies it again. I'm not there yet. I haven't fully taken hold of Christ but Christ, Christ has taken hold of me. And I do it anyway. I, I forget everything that's behind, all the works and strivings and rules. I, I strain toward what is ahead. I run, I, I press on to that goal of being in Christ because that is the end. That is the perfection. That is the kingdom purpose goal that I strive toward, being in Christ. And for us, for, for all of us, that too is the goal. How Christ holds on to us and those of us who believe, those who trust in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ are in Christ. We're in Christ's hands. Christ holds on to us and we hold on to Christ. We can hold on to him knowing that our deeds are like garbage, that nothing we can do in this life can earn our way to God, that no good deed is enough to deserve a good life now and beyond. No, we trust in the faithfulness of Christ. Not in our own faithless faithfulness. No, it's all about what Jesus Christ has done and what he will do. And that's exactly what we declare at baptism. That's exactly what we say when we come to the font. Whether as an infant or a child or an adult, we come knowing deep down that Jesus Christ has done everything. That that nothing we can do will earn our salvation. That nothing Jane does or could ever do can save her. No, instead, it's about what Jesus has done. About what Jesus has done in her and in us. How, How in baptism, God speaks first. In baptism, God claims us as his own children. And Jesus holds us in his hands. And the Spirit washes us and cleanses us and renews us for holy living. In baptism we realize that it is only by the faithfulness of Christ that we can be right with God. In baptism, we become one with Christ, one with him in his death, and one with him in his resurrection. In the name of the Father, 
and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. O God, it is by your faithfulness, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to the will of the triune God, that we can be right with you. And we, we want to take hold of him. We want to know him and be found in him. And to know and to remember those promises that you made at, at our baptisms. Promises to have and to hold on to us as your children. O Christ, take hold of us. And give us strength by your Spirit to take hold of you, that we may know Christ, that we may be continually more and more in him. We receive these gifts, these promises of grace, with thanksgiving and with joy, knowing Christ Jesus is our Lord, and in in knowing him we are found in him. We give you thanks and praise for your word, through Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Amen.